us to have uh, James Barbalitos, who is our pastor of student ministries, come and open the word of God to us as he continues on in the book of Colossians. James. Well, good morning. It's, uh, it's always a pleasure to be bringing God's word to you. It seems like it's been a little while since I've been up here with the Christmas season just passed and the new year already fast approaching. February begins this month already, so it's, it's flying by. And I know there's a lot of excitement, especially amongst the youth of the new facility and what, what's it going to be like. And, and so we continue to pray for God's wisdom and blessing on that. Charles Dickens, the famous author called this the greatest story ever told. Countless books, movies, plays have been influenced by it. People such as Shakespeare and Rembrandt um, use this story as inspiration for much of, um, of their writings or art. The story I'm speaking about is the parable of the prodigal son found in Luke 15, and I, I think... Most of you are familiar with it. During this time, Jesus is, is telling a, a story of, about, uh, of, a, of a father who had a son, a selfish son, who one day uh, went to him and said, Lord, I, or Father, I, I would like uh, my, her- my inheritance. And in a sense, this would, is like saying, uh, Dad, I, I'm tired of waiting for you to die, so could you just give me what's coming to me so I don't have to wait anymore? Even in our society, that would be shameful, uh, especially back in the, in the Jewish society in the time of Jesus. Uh, this would have been, uh, in a sense, especially wicked. But despite the audacity of the request, the, the father honors what the son asks, and he divides up his property, and he gives the son what is coming to him. And he uh, does what many young uh, sons do, unfortunately. He takes all his wealth. He takes it to a far-off land. Uh, he squanders it on, on a lavish lifestyle and prostitutes, seemingly never to, to see uh, his family again. But after he had squandered the money, um, a, a severe famine had hit the land, and uh, he had no food. And so he had to hire himself out uh, to one of the local landowners. And the only work that was available, seemingly, was uh, to feed pigs. And so he finds himself having once had some wealth, now feeding pigs and becoming jealous of the very pigs uh, that he was feeding because of their food. And it's at this point in the story that Jesus says the son comes to his senses. And he says, you know, didn't didn't my father, don't don't the servants in my father's house at least have uh, more than enough bread to eat? And here I am being jealous of pigs. What have I done? What I'm going to do is I'm, I'm going to go to my father and I'm going to say, Father, I have sinned against heaven and I've sinned against you. And I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Please treat me like one of your servants now. He had a change of heart and that's what he did. He purposed in his heart and so he traveled back to his father. But as Jesus tells a story, as he approached his home, his, saw, his father saw him coming from afar. And he ran to him. 
and he embraced him and he kissed him. And his son, possibly trembling, begins to, to say exactly what he had purposed in his heart. Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you and I'm, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But his father seemingly doesn't even hear his words. He, he calls for his servant to bring out a robe and he puts a robe around his son. He takes a ring, puts it on his son's finger and he calls for a great feast to be prepared. For my son was dead, the father said, but is alive again. He was lost, and now he's found. And they began to celebrate. What is it about this story and and stories like it that we love so much? During the holiday time, uh, uh, Leanne and I, we we watched our fair share of the Hallmark Channel. And like 90% of all the movies are just like this, right? I mean, there's like a, a guy and a gal, or it's a parent and a child, or, or, or some sort of relationship that's strained because of, of heartbreak or sin, and you think that all hope is lost, but then there's a change of heart, and something um, gets fixed or reconciled, and then um, things are restored and live happily ever after. Like a dozen of them, but, but we, like, we like them all. I mean, some are more cheesy than others, but... But what is it about those stories that, that we love so much? I think it's because despite the sin in the world, despite the heartbreak and the heartache, we enjoy seeing what happens when there is the hope of reconciliation. We see that there's hope. That despite that mistakes have been made in the past, Reconciliation is possible. And that is the topic which we will turn to this morning. Reconciliation. As Joe mentioned, we uh, will be in the book of Colossians. We'll be in chapter 1, so please turn there if you haven't done so already. And we, we've been going through this as, as, uh, as the Lord has given me occasion to preach verse by verse. And now we find ourselves uh, in, in verse 19 of, of chapter 1. Then just to give you a little bit of a reminder of of context, uh, the book of Colossians was written by Paul uh, from a Roman prison during his first imprisonment around 60 A.D. And he he wrote it to the believers in the the church of Colossae, which is located in Asia Minor, modern day Turkey. And he wrote it to a, a group of believers there that he had never met But he had met their pastor named Epaphras. In fact, it's most likely that Epaphras came to know the Lord under the preaching of Paul some years prior and uh, while Paul was in Ephesus. And so Epaphras travels uh, to Rome to visit Paul in prison. And while he is there, he he seeks some guidance and some uh, wisdom concerning some of the issues the church is facing. And so Paul writes, he pens this letter to, to both give them an encouragement but also some instruction. And as we saw the last, uh, the last few times that I've spoken with you, uh, one of the areas that Paul addressed is the preeminence of Jesus Christ, the identity of Jesus Christ. Who is Jesus Christ? And beginning in verse 15 of chapter 1, Paul pens one of the most detailed descriptions of who Jesus is. He gave no room for doubt or debate. Jesus is God. In every regard, 
He's not an angel. He's not the highest ranking angel as some were propagating within the, within the church during that time and are continuing to propagate even today. He's not a created being. He, in fact, is the creator of everything. He spoke all things into existence, whether in heaven or on earth or under the earth. And he continues to hold them together this very moment. And as he's continuing his description of of Christ, beginning in in verse 19, as we will see, uh, Paul makes a shift and uh, moves from who Christ is to what he has done. Specifically, what he has done and how it affects those who believe in him. And so it is my hope is that we look to God's word this morning that, that, that the name of Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ will be exalted within your hearts this morning as you see the, the, the wondrous works that he, has, that he has accomplished of not only who he is, but what he has done for us. So read with me as we, we begin. Colossians 1, 19. Paul writes, For in Him, that is Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, He has now reconciled in His body of flesh by His death, in order to present you holy and blameless And above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Let's bow in a word of prayer as we begin. Lord, as we come before your word, we are... Uh, grateful that uh, you have made yourself known to us. We pray, Father, that as we hear your word, you would help us um, to apply the truths we find to our lives, Lord, and that you would continue to conform us to your image and use us as a light for your gospel to those uh, around us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So beginning in verse 19, Paul, in a sense, almost gives a summary of, of, of all that he has just talked about. And we, we, we examined it in detail the last three messages uh, that I spoke to you. But in 19, he says concerning Christ that in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. There was no aspect of God that was lacking in Jesus Christ. This is why Jesus could say, as he does in John 14, 9, that if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. Jesus was not lacking his God in, in, any, in any way. Looking over, actually, just a, a few verses to Colossians 2, uh, verse 19 as well. Ooh, that's, that's not right. Ah, nine, excuse me. Glad I had it underlined. Colossians 2, 9, Paul reiterates the same truth and he says, For in him, Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. 
the whole fullness of deity. That, that term fullness, both here and, and in Colossians 1.19, um, in the Greek it ha- has a variety of meanings, but oftentimes it, it means to be um, complete or um, lacking nothing. In Mark 8.20, uh, the author uses it to, to um, describe the baskets that were left over when Christ had just fed the four the 4,000 Christ. Didn't we? How many baskets were left full over? Um, in other words, they were full to the brim. We couldn't even fill them anymore. And in fact, uh, the word is often also used uh, to describe the fulfillment of prophecy. Thus was fulfilled the prophecy. And when a prophecy is fulfilled, that means it was completed. There was, there was no aspect of, about it that was lacking. It was, it was done to completion. So Paul uses the same description of Christ and says there there is nothing lacking in Christ. That God, he is lacking a deity in no way. But Paul notes that, that, that not only the fullness of God dwelt with Christ, but that the fullness was pleased to dwell in him. Some versions may say um, that it was, you know, he was pleased to have the fullness of God or it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell. Which kind of begs the question, what kind of, what kind of pleasure could God find in dwelling as a man? I mean, he, he's, he's so much greater and bigger than we are. He, he, he created all things from the, the molecules of our body to the, the very universe, the galaxies that extend billions of light years. He is holy, he's marvelous, he's magnificent, yet he finds pleasure in, in becoming a man and dwelling among us. What pleasure could he find? Well, Paul explains that this pleasure that is found is centered around reconciliation. Reconciliation. So through this passage, Paul describes three aspects of being reconciled to God so that you will glory in Jesus Christ and live according to the hope you have in Him. Three aspects of being reconciled to God, so that you will glory in Jesus Christ and live according to the hope you have in Him. What pleased the Father? He found pleasure in becoming a man, because it meant that through that, man could be reconciled back to Him. In a sense, this brings us back to the the parable of the prodigal son. Because if you remember, actually in the parable, the father had two sons. And the older, from the outset, seemed like the good guy. Right? He he did the responsible thing. He he stayed at home. He was near the father. He took care of, of the land. He didn't go out and party. He didn't squander the wealth. It seemed from all aspects that he was quite unlike his younger brother. But as Jesus tells the story, it becomes clear that inside he was just as wicked. Pride had filled his heart. He had no real love for his father. He had no joy in in the repentance of sin that his brother expressed. And it became apparent that in the end he was only living for himself. And the story, as Jesus tells it, this son represents, uh, represented the religious leaders and the Pharisees who, from, from the outside, appeared close to God, but inside were, were filled with self-righteousness and hypocrisy, of whom had no true relationship with God. 
And the truth of the matter is, this was once all of you. All of us. It's easy to point the finger at the, those bad Pharisees or those, those uh, religious leaders even today who have, who have fallen into sin. But the truth of the matter is, this was all of you. It was all of us. And Paul makes it clear in this passage, looking to, to verse 21 of Colossians 1. He says, And you, speaking to the Colossian believers, but certainly could, this could apply and does apply to all Christians, you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. The problem is your sin. The first aspect of being reconciled to God begins with the problem. You have a problem. It is sin. At one point, Adam and Eve were living harmoniously in the Garden of Eden. Their relationship with God was was solid and wonderful. But then they sinned and that relationship was severed. It was broken. And because of that, death entered into the world. And Romans says, death entered in the world and it spread to all men. Why? Because all had sinned. Our God is God of love indeed, but He is also a holy God. And He cannot abide with sin. And so, our relationship with Him because of our sin was broken. And that's what Paul describes in, in, in verse 21. You were once alienated. The term alienated means to be cut off or estranged or separated. You were separated from God. Like Adam and Eve were cast out of the garden when they sinned, so too you were cast away from the presence of God because of your sin. And it's worse still. Not only were we alienated... But because of our sin, our hearts turned away from God and we began to hate Him. Paul says, you were once alienated in verse 21 and also hostile in mind or enemies in your mind. And that, that term hostile or enemies it, it can also be translated hateful. And I think that's a, a good way to understand it. You resented and hated God and wanted to live in your own way, according to your own deeds, doing, as the rest of verse 21 says, doing evil deeds. That was all of us. John uh, 3:19 through 20 explains this well. John writes, "People love the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does wicked hates the things of light. It does not come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. And I don't think that this truth is too difficult to understand, is it? I mean, just take a look around in the world. Take a look around. The world seems to be doing the best. Those who continue to reject Christ continue to, to do the very best they can to shut God out of their lives. And not their own lives. Shut God out of society. So that they can continue to live and do what is right in their own eyes. And Paul says, this was once all of us. You hated God and you had no desire to be reconciled to Him. 
You were opposed to Him. We were opposed to Him as a society in every possible way. We wronged God and, and He had the right to punish us and cast us all in hell. That would be His right. But instead, it pleased God to do something else. It pleased God to reconcile Himself to us. But how? How is this possible? Well, in describing the aspects of being reconciled to God, Paul here, first he he describes the problem, our sin. But then he goes in and describes the plan, the plan of reconciliation that God has designed before the foundations of time. Paul writes again in, in verse 19, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, then in 20, and to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. One commentator notes that the the word reconcile is one of the most significant and descriptive terms in all of Scripture. It is one of five key words used in the New Testament to describe the richness of salvation in Christ, along with justification, redemption, forgiveness, and adoption. Reconciliation. Reconciliation is the gospel at its very core. The gospel means good news. And what is this good news? That despite your sin, there is hope to be reconciled to God through faith in Jesus Christ. The Greek term for reconcile, it's a, it's a long one, apokatalasso. And, and it means to uh, literally to change or to exchange Because reconciliation of this type requires some sort of of exchange. And when it occurs, it means a change in relationship. And when this term is used in Scripture, it means a change in standing before God. You were once an enemy, and now you have a change in standing. You are now a friend. But it it requires some sort of exchange. And this is is also easy to see. Uh, You know, let's say you were to borrow your sister's shoes or your brother's video games or what have you without asking. And then you break it and you break it. That might cause a a little bit of a conflict or or an issue with your relationship to them. Right. So you need to go and have some sort of exchange to repair this relationship. What do you do? Well, first things first, you as even scripture says, you acknowledge the wrongdoing you've done. You go to them and you acknowledge that you had sinned against them. And then true repentance would be willing to reconcile by offering to pay for the video game or to do whatever terms they, the wronged party seemed acceptable to, to reconcile the relationship. And the same is true with God except for one major difference. Nothing you can do can ever make up for the wrong you've done. Ever. The price is too great. It's too, the cost is too high. You've wronged him too much. The penalty for sin, Scripture says, is death and eternal separation from him. Just one sin is enough to separate you from God for eternity. Just one And how many countless ones have you committed? The lies you've told. The pride that's developed in your heart. The lust, the covetousness, the envy. Everyone worthy of its own judgment. And these are crimes. 
We've broken God's law and their crimes against law, uh, crimes, and therefore they must be punished. To do so, to, to, to not punish them would be unjust. Our God is loving, He is holy, but He's also just and He must punish sin. He can't just wink at it and say, okay, you know what, I love you, I'll, I'll just let you go. That would be unjust. But God devised a plan so that reconciliation would be accomplished. And it's a plan we know well. That He Himself would come down and live a perfect, sinless life. And then, though He was innocent, would willingly take your punishment upon Himself and die on the cross paying the horrific penalty of our sin and thus satisfying justice. The sins have been paid, but making reconciliation with God possible. He was the one wronged. He was the one that deserved to be compensated. And yet he was the one that paid the fine. This is the gospel at its core. He paid the fine in his own blood. Why? So that we might be reconciled to Him and so that He might make the richness of His glory and mercy, the character of mercy, His character known to us. That we might know how great and wonderful our God is. Peter writes this in 1 Peter 3.18, For Christ also suffered once for sin, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but being made alive in the Spirit. And how do we know that uh, that reconciliation was accomplished? Well, because Christ, three days later, rose from the dead. He rose from the dead and and proved that, that our price had been paid, that God's wrath had been satisfied, and that all who would believe in Him would too one day be raised from the dead. What hope that is. Despite our sin, despite when we blow it, there's hope in Christ. And important to note here um, about Paul's statement that, that Christ, that all things have been reconciled to himself, whether on earth or in heaven. Much has been made about this statement, all things, whether on earth and heaven. You know, what does that mean? Is that, does that mean, and some even uh, believe this today, that this is Paul saying that ultimately one day all people will be in heaven. That God has reconciled all people. And even uh, uh, the, the, uh, the fallen angels... I read one commentary where one guy was saying that even through this, there's the possibility of Satan himself coming to repentance if that were possible. Is that what this is saying? What does that mean? He reconciled all things to himself. Well, we always must be careful to not allow one passage of Scripture to contradict the uh, many passages that, that say something else. And we know that, that, that there's a myriad of Scriptures that make it clear that salvation is through Christ alone. The hope is found in Him. So what is meant by this? Well, it is simply this. When Christ died, He once and for all conquered the power of sin and death. And when He did this, two things occurred. The first was that the hope of eternal life was given to those who repent and have faith in Him. The second is that the hope of eternal life for anyone who would reject him was utterly crushed and their fate was sealed. Well, what do I mean? Well, 
During, during wartime, in general, peace can be achieved of one, of one of two ways. The first is if the two conflicting parties come together and agree on terms of peace. They sign a peace treaty, peace is made. In a sense, this is like those who have turned and, and placed their faith in Christ. We come together and the terms of peace are this. We have to recognize that Jesus is God and repent of our sin. Recognize we can't earn God's favor by our works, but we must place our faith in Him alone that He paid our price. Those are the terms of peace. And those who agree upon it have been reconciled to God and there's peace. However, there's another way that peace can be achieved. And it's this. If one of the parties in the conflict defeats and conquers the other, then peace is once again established. There's no more conflict. And the winning party uh, takes over, and in this case, uh, takes over the evil party, and imprisons and punishes them for their deeds. Even if it's against their will, peace is still established. Because they, they were conquered. The weapons, they've been disarmed. And this is how God is reconciled to those who reject Him. Christ will one day come and establish His rule and peace and reconciliation will be, satis- it will be accomplished because um, those who believe in Him will live, but those who reject Him will be punished. Will be punished. And Paul, to help see this, he describes this flipping over to Colossians 2 again. Beginning in, 13, in verse 13, he writes, And you, speaking of Christians again, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your heart, God has made alive together with him, having forgiven us of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. So, there's the reconciliation. But he also did something else by his death. Verse 15, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them through him. So those we see that those who have come to God on his terms have peace and reconciliation. But those who continue to oppose him, he has disarmed, he has conquered. And he's put them to open shame. And when they die, they will be cast into God's prison hell to justly pay for the deeds that they have done. Which side are you on? Have you come to God on His terms? Or are you trying to make your own way? It's a losing battle. It's a losing battle. And how do you know what side you're on? You might say, well, Pastor James, I think that I've been reconciled to God. I mean, I'm here, aren't I? Well, I hope that's the case. But Paul's final description of, of what it means to be reconciled to God makes this, this question, the answer to this question, clear. The first aspect of being reconciled to God is understanding the problem. The second is, is seeing God's plan for reconciliation. And the third is this, the product of of reconciliation the product of reconciliation Paul says that if you've been reconciled to God there's two things that will happen there's going there's, there's to be a result and the first is this you will have peace 
you have peace with God. Verse 19, flipping back to Colossians 1. He says, and uh, verse 20 rather, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. The conflict between you and God, the hatred has been removed. He's now no longer your enemy, but he is your friend. He's your friend. I recently read in an academic journal that... Um, that anxiety is an epidemic in our society. You know, I said there's over 40 million people that have been officially diagnosed with some sort of uh, anxiety disorder. And many more than that, you know, flock to counselors and, 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 and take medication because they, they, they live in fear. Fear of many things. Honestly speaking, those who do not know Christ should be afraid. They should be terrified. Because we know that we're not promised tomorrow. And things happen every day. And at any moment, we could be called to stand before our Creator and give an account for our life and the things that we have done. The writer of Hebrews says it well. It is a fearful thing to fall in the hands of a living God. But for the Christian, this should not be so. The fear of death is gone. The fear of death is gone because we've been made right with our God. Paul writes about this. Paul writes, Christ reconciled you. Why did he reconcile you? What happened? Peace has been restored. In verse 22, He is now reconciled. Colossians 1.22, He is now reconciled in His body, the flesh, by death. Why? In order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before Him. This is now how God sees you. No matter what you've done, from the most wicked criminal to seemingly the average person who's who's went to church their whole life, but has never really accepted Christ until later. He sees you as holy. What does that mean? It means to be set apart from sin, but also to be set apart for God. That's how God sees you. He sees you as someone who is now set apart from sin. He also sees you as blameless or or without blemish. In other words, He sees you as having spotless, perfect character. Makes me think of a, of, a, of a beautiful garment of white that has no flaws. Before we were full of flaws that were clear to everyone, but now Christ sees us with robes of righteousness. God also sees us as above reproach. And this is similar to, to being blameless, but it, it, it more carries the understanding of being free from accusation. You are now innocent in the sight of God. And you know, Scripture says that uh, Satan is also called the great accuser. In Revelation, it reveals that he is constantly accusing God's followers before him. Look what they've done. Look how they've broken your law. Look how they failed. And yet, because of what Christ has done, you are declared innocent. Not because you haven't done anything, but because your fine has been paid. Your debt has been paid. You are free to go. 
There's no longer fear of death. The theological term for what I'm, this whole process is called imputation. And it means that not only was our wickedness placed upon Christ, but His righteousness was given to us. And that's how God sees us. And now, because we are holy, blameless, and above reproach, when we die, we, we have no need of fear and we can be welcomed in His kingdom and go before His throne. The great hymn writer Charles Wesley understood this well when he, when he penned the words, No condemnation now I dread. Jesus and all in Him is mine. Alive in Him, my living head, and clothed in righteousness divine. Bold, I approach the eternal throne, and claim the crown through Christ my own. Amazing love, how can it be that Thou, my God, should die for me? That is the hope we have in Christ. That is the peace you can have through faith in Jesus Christ. And practically speaking, what does this mean? It means when you blow it, when you sin and you know it, God is not going to cast you off. You have forgiveness. If you have true faith in Him and you've repented, then that no matter what sin you've done, no matter how you blow it, there's still hope of reconciliation. You didn't earn it in the first place, and so you can't unearn it. Your sins have been paid past, present, and future, and there's peace now with God. But that doesn't mean we can live in any way we want. And unfortunately, many have made this grave mistake as well. And so Paul continues on, and he gives the final aspect on what is the product of being reconciled to God. The first is this, peace. And the second is the, 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 the other is this, proof. Proof of reconciliation. Paul, in the end, gives an important, very practical warning. Because knowing all this information that I've said, knowing these truths, but not applying it to your life to allow it to radically transform your life is worthless. In fact, it's foolish. It's like driving on a road where you know the bridge is out ahead, but you continue to drive and then you just go and plummet off the cliff and die. If, if you, you read about somebody doing that, that they knew the bridge was out, but ah, they continued to go. What would you think of that? Foolishness. Silly. Those who have been reconciled to God, Scripture says, have been born again and are no longer alienated or hostile in mind and doing evil deeds. Their reconciliation with God is made evident by their life. Is this true of your life? Does it reflect the radical change that a relationship with Christ would bring in the heart of a man or woman? Well, how do you know? How do you know if it's you? Well, Paul gives a very, very clear instruction. Colossians 1.23. He says that he's reconciled you to be holy and blameless and above reproach. Verse 23. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you have heard. 
Salvation is not by works, okay? It's offered freely. But Scripture is full of these kind of warnings, isn't it? Warnings that that beg the question on how a relationship with Christ should manifest itself in your life. You want to know how you you know you're going to be reconciled with God because it's going to pour forth in your life and you're going to remain faithful to Jesus Christ. No matter what trials you may face, no matter what temptations or struggle life might throw at you, you will remain steadfast and faithful. Your life, your works reveal your heart. The idea that you can accept Christ but in turn continue or live in the very way which separated you from Him in the first place is not only foolish, it's offensive to God. It's offensive to God. This idea that, yeah, I I believe in Christ, but your life doesn't reflect anything about what it means to remain in the faith. What does that mean? It means to obey Him and follow after Him. Not to earn His favor, but because of what He's already done for you in, in gratitude. And in love for Him. Those who have been reconciled are are so grateful for what God has done that they desire to please Him. They desire to love and to know their great Savior more. It's not out of obligation. It's not a bunch of laws you have to complete to earn your way. It's impossible. Does this mean you will never sin? Of course not. If that were the case, I'm out. But what it does mean is that you hate your sin. And when you, when you fall into it, you repent and your desire is to turn from it. And you're helping others to turn from their sin too in love. The one who is truly reconciled to God will truly remain with Him till the end. No matter what they face, anything else is a false faith. Anything else is a false faith, and Scripture warns of this. There were many, even during Jesus' time, that were listening to Him and following Him, but then, whether it was a harsh teaching, or they loved the world, or something happened, but they turned and left. And John says in 1 John that when this happens, it's not as if they lost their faith, it's just that now it's being made clear that they never had faith in the first place. Because if they did, there's no way they could turn their back on the Savior. So Paul warns, prove your faith and your reconciliation is genuine by remaining true to the faith, steadfast, not wavering. Do you see the greatness of Jesus Christ through these words? Do you see the love which He has shown and demonstrated to us? Paul reveals here one of the clearest passages on how we can be reconciled to God. Recognizing the problem of our sin, seeing His plan of redemption, and then allowing that plan for redemption to radically transform your life as you place your faith in Jesus Christ. And letting that change produce fruits in your life, clear for all to see. Sure, we might have done some terrible things. But as as John Newton said towards the end of his life, a former slave owner who had done 
many atrocious things, but wrote the words to Amazing Grace. He says, My memory is nearly gone, but I remember two things. That I am a great sinner, and that Christ is a great Savior. It's my prayer that you would all say the same. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you, Father, for your grace and your kindness to us. The hope that we have in reconciliation. The peace now that we can rest in you, knowing you are sovereign and control all things. And that we, because of our faith, can have sweet fellowship both here now in this life and in the life to come forevermore. I pray, Lord, that if there's anyone here who does not know you, that is still alienated from you and hostile in mind and doing evil deeds, Lord, that today would be the day that you would open their eyes to salvation and bring them into your kingdom. Glorify yourself through them. Glorify yourself through all of us, Lord, that your great name might be made known by us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.